The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Psalm 51, I invite you to turn there in your Bible. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's one in a chair underneath you or underneath the one in front of you. We're on page 474 on the chair Bible. And while you're looking there, if you're a guest, I invite you to take the connect card you'll find there and fill out the information on that. And let us know that you're here today by dropping that in the offering plate at the end of our service. That's the only way we want you to participate when that time comes is just with the guest card. We want to continue now in our study of Psalm 51, looking at verses 7 through 12. So I invite you to stand, please. Psalm 51, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, as we consider these words of David in Psalm 51, we're reminded of the filthiness of sin, and we're reminded of our great need to be cleansed and restored to proper fellowship with you. You are the only one that can wash our sins away and renew us. We praise you and thank you that all of our sin has been dealt with at the cross. By the wounds of Christ, a ransom has been paid and we have been cleansed by his blood. Yet we still battle with our flesh on a day-to-day basis. So we ask, Father, that you would purge us from this remaining sin that we might be a people dedicated to your service. We ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's take a few moments and just remind ourselves as to where we are because verses 7 through 12 are in the greater context of Psalm 51. This is after Nathan has come and confronted David with the truth of his sin as it relates to Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, which is contained in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. The psalm begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You'll notice some repetition in what we've read in verses 7 through 12. As this 
theme and idea is wound throughout the entire psalm. So there were two major points last week. The awareness of sin before and against the Lord God results in crying for mercy. So I'm not going to cry for mercy until I'm aware of my sin before and against God. Second, the awareness of the nature and ability of the Lord results in crying to him for mercy. So I'm not going to cry to God for mercy until I understand who God is and what God is able to do. So we concluded with this question. Is the awareness of my sin before the Lord God resulting in crying for mercy? So the first hurdle that we've got to overcome to understand and apply Psalm 51 is we have to come to a place of awareness of our sin. If we're not convinced that we've sinned against God, if we're not convinced of our sinfulness, we're never going to cry for mercy. And I understand that's a huge hurdle in our culture. Because sin is something, the whole idea of sin is something that has been rejected as simply a means of oppressing people. So we first may understand our sin against God. The second hurdle we've got to overcome is looking to the nature and ability of the Lord, do we really believe that God can and will graciously apply his mercy to our lives? Do we believe that's who God is? Do we believe that's what God is able to do? Let me illustrate. When I was a youth pastor, I took students to a mission trip in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, We stayed on Kensington Avenue, and Kensington Avenue is... uh, It is either the most dangerous mission trip I've ever been on or the second most dangerous mission trip I've ever been on. I am not exaggerating. There's no hyperbole in what I'm saying. There was a brothel across the street. The prostitutes turned tricks in front of us. Drugs were dealt 24 hours a day right in front of the building we were staying in. We didn't go to Philadelphia and bus into where ministry was. We lived right square in the middle of where this ministry was taking place. We concluded the week with what we called a Luke 14 dinner. You can look this up later, but Jesus says, if you throw a banquet, don't invite your rich friends. You invite the poor, the needy, the handicapped, the people who who are in need, you bring them. So we had this nice meal. We invited the people. We invited all these people and they came. They were just shocked. Like y'all really want us to come? So they came, we, we, we ate with them. We split up, ate with them. And then we shared the gospel with them. And several of them stayed afterward to talk. One in particular was the prostitute who worked the corner across the street, Mona Dooley, who was uh, a part of our church at that time and served in our student ministry team. Uh, Mona had been talking with this lady all week and uh, I could see that the lady was deeply emotional as she was over there talking to Mona and Mona called me over and here was the gist of the conversation. Because of her background, and her understanding and what she heard that evening as we shared the gospel. She was totally convinced that she needed to be forgiven because she had sinned. Here's what she was not convinced of. She was not convinced that God could forgive her. She kept repeating over and over and over, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what I do every day. So there's two giant hurdles standing in front of people today. Still there for some of you. The first hurdle 
is sin. Have I actually sinned against God? Some of you are still convinced, quote, I'm not a bad person. I'm not like that prostitute. I've never done anything wrong. Or here's the greatest lie of the South. I've always been a Christian. Then the second hurdle are those of you who are completely aware of what you've done and you're convinced in your mind that God could never forgive it. Now let's think about who's writing Psalm 51. This is the king, a man who's been identified as a man after God's own heart, who has committed adultery with another man's wife, who has created such a deceptive scheme to get over it that he descended to murdering one of his most faithful comrades and soldiers, and in that implicated his closest ally, Joab, to help him get it done. How could God forgive that? How could God transform that? That's why Psalm 51 is in the Bible. So that we can see. So here's the main idea. The Lord God graciously cleanses, renews, and restores those who cry for mercy. So we're answering this question. What happens when out of an awareness of our sin, an awareness of the nature and ability of the Lord God, what happens when we cry for mercy? The answer is the Lord God graciously cleanses those who cry for mercy. Let's look at the text. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now you'll notice right away in reading the psalm that there's a lot of repetition in language here that's been used in the first six verses. But he's very distinct here. Purge me. That means cleanse me or purify me with hyssop. So what in the world is hyssop and what does that have to do with the text? Simply stated, hyssop is a flowering plant, similar to an herb. So why why would David be thinking about hyssop? There There are two things that would have been in David's mind. First, in Exodus, when the Passover came, the way you kept from the firstborn of your family being killed is that you put blood above the door and on the sides of the doorframe. You know how you applied it? With hyssop. You dipped hyssop into the blood. You wiped it on your doorframe. That was the instruction. At the purification, the application of the sacrifice in the temple, the priest would take hyssop and dip it into the blood to apply it for the sacrifice of sin. So he's saying, take the hyssop and take the blood and apply it, purge me, cleanse me. And when you do that, I shall be clean. He presses the metaphor further. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So he's talking here about a pure and complete cleansing. So let me illustrate with children, probably men too. Like if you had kids in your house, they spill stuff. Like I have one kid who's a professional spiller. All right. 
Soft drinks are the worst. So you want your children and your husbands to learn to clean up what they spill. So here's, here's what a child will do. They'll go get a paper towel or a, ta- a kitchen towel and they'll wipe it up and they'll look at it and go, eh, it's gone. And along you're going to come a couple hours later and your feet are sticking to the floor. Or if it makes that spot, makes it for a couple days and you don't step in it, it starts getting this black film over the top of it. You know what I'm talking about? It's because it's collecting the dirt. For, for most of us, I think this is how we're approaching dealing with our sin. We're just going to swipe over it, get rid of it. But there's this residue, there's this evidence that's going on because it's not been fully dealt with. It's only what we've done. I know my metaphor breaks down. Okay? Because this is only what God can do. When God cleanses and washes, it's whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Now I'm at verse 9. Hide your face from my sin. What What does David mean here? The priestly wrestling says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face what? Shine on you. David says, hide your face from me. Hide it from my sins. Here's what David knows. A sinner cannot stand in the presence of God. So though David, I don't think he's clearly saying this, you got to take the whole counsel of the Bible and put together what the whole Bible's teaching to understand this. But ultimately, here's what David's asking for. He's asking for the cross. He's asking for the moment when someone must come between our sin and holy God. And that someone is the God-man, Jesus Christ. At the cross, Christ, who never sinned, became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin for us. Now, why or what happened in that moment when Christ becomes sin? What does the Father do? You sang it just a minute ago. He turns his face away. He turns his face away and Christ becomes sin on our behalf. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. Here's why. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Now take the end of verse 9 and you understand it. Blot out my iniquities. This does not mean, this does not mean God looks at your sin when you pray and ask for forgiveness and goes, oh, no big deal. I forget it. It's gone. It's over. No, it's not that simple. Christ paid for it. Christ's redemptive work on the cross is how our sins were blotted out. They were erased. And it's not just part of my sin. Look at the, look what he's asking for. Blot out all my iniquities, my guilt. So he's not asking for the remission of one sin or a few sins or of many sins, but of all sins. Then in verse 80 says, this is sandwiched in the middle and you got to see it between these two pieces of bread, if you will. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So the mercy of God, the cleansing, the the, the 
purifying, the washing, the blotting out results in me hearing joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So here's what, here's what he's saying. Reset the bones. Reset my broken bones. And this is not literal. This is a metaphor. It's an image he's given you. But question, look at it real close. Look, look, look at verse 8. Who broke David's bones? Who? God did. It was by God's grace that he didn't leave David to his sin. By God's grace, he broke his bones. He crushed him down. It is by God's grace there are consequences to our sin. It's by God's grace he doesn't leave you to yourself. And it is by God's grace that he resets that which he has broken. And when he resets that which he has broken, our bones, which were once broken from the inner person, we rejoice. Now let's turn over to Hebrews 9. Let's get a little explanation from the New Testament as to what we're asking for here. What's transpiring here? Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So he's saying in the ceremonial cleansing, if that is for the purification of the flesh, the outward person, what the person had done. So the Bible, in the Old Testament sacrifice, not dealing with 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 the inner part of the person, this is doing with the outer part what the person's done. So if that deals with purification of flesh, how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So here's, here's what God is doing in this complex work of salvation, as he applies the redeeming work of Christ to our lives. First, he is purifying our conscience from dead works. That means we need to stop listening to ourself, which says you're an utter failure. Or as it's said throughout Christendom in this part of the country, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That is not who I am. Sin does not define me anymore. I am not defined by my sin. I am defined by Christ. He has purified my conscience from dead works. That means my mind is set somewhere else. I'm freed from the sin and sadness. To what? To serve the living God. So back to verse 8 of Psalm 51. Let me hear joy and gladness. (laughs) So it's no longer listening to the condemnation of my conscience. I'm listening to the joy and gladness of the gospel. That that which is broken has now been set. And now with joy and gladness I rejoice. I've been cleansed. Now it brings us to the second point. 
that the Lord God graciously cleanses, but he also renews those who cry for mercy. Create in me a clean heart, O God. So I, I think in, in, in my mind, probably in your mind, you, 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 you probably are praying it like this. Make me clean, God. Boy, what he's saying here is much, much more profound than make me clean. Create. This is a very rare word. It's only used a, a few times in the Old Testament. The word create is pointing to the sovereign power that God exercises in doing something that appears to be impossible. You shouldn't be surprised. This is the word used in the beginning of Genesis. When out of nothing, God creates. He, he is doing something here that is nothing less than a miracle. It's something only God can do, but it's not just a one-time act, create, it suggests a sustaining process as well as an instantaneous act. Now, as I'm thinking about the fullness of the Bible here in creation, the Bible begins with creation and ends with a new creation. And the implications of that on our life when we think about this are huge. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Do something that seems impossible here. It's not just God purify my heart. It's, it's, it's God created me a clean heart. Something that must be done inside of me. Something that must be done in the inner person so that I would be pure. Created me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. I'd, I prefer the New American Standard translation. It says, and renew a steadfast spirit in me or a resolute spirit. Because when we re think right, the opposite of right is what? Wrong. That's not what he means here. It's not right or wrong. He means steadfast instead of weak. Resolute instead of giving up. Create or renew a right spirit within me. Now, this brings me to, to Proverbs 4.23. You don't have to turn there. Here's what it says. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it, the heart, from the heart, flow the springs of life. So everything that you do, everything, every person in this room, every one of you, what you do comes from your heart, no exception. There's no exception. For from the heart flows the springs of life. Now I'm going to read a passage. I wish I would have remembered this book. I apologize that we should have made this available several weeks ago. This is a devotional that Paul Tripp wrote on Psalm 51. The title is Whiter Than Snow. It's one or two pages a day where you consider part of the psalm. Sometimes he returns to the same phrase multiple times. So in this particular day, he is considering the phrase, create in me a clean heart, O God. Now listen carefully. Worship is not first an activity. Worship is first a position of the heart. It's only when my heart esteems God above everything else that I'll serve him with my time, energy, money, and strength. Impurity of the heart is not primarily bad thoughts or bad desires. No, 
Impurity of the heart is about love for something in creation that replaces the love that, was, that I was meant to have for the creator only. When I love something in creation more than I love God, this is the crucial sentence. When I love something in creation more than I love God, I'll think, desire, say, and do evil things. So why do you, why, why do you go down the, path, down the pathway of living in sin? It's because... It's because you're worshiping something or someone other than God. For from your heart flows the wellspring of life. Now I'll come back to this at the end of our service this morning. This is the core issue of what we're dealing with at summer camp with our students this week. Let's go to verse 11. This is one of those confusing verses that's created lots of debate and discussion. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This has been misused and taken out of context to mean things it doesn't mean. Question, who was king before David? Saul. In relationship to the Spirit of God, what happened to Saul? The Spirit of God what? Left him. So David, as the king here, is saying, I don't want to be Saul. So he is not indicating that David's afraid he's about to lose his salvation. What David is saying and pleading is that he does not want God to remove his divine power from his life. So to say it positively, he's asking for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. He recognizes that he has grieved and quenched the Spirit of God by the pathway he's gone down. But he's asking that we would continue to live in the power and presence of the Spirit. So, as followers of Christ, we must recognize and live in the awareness of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So a brother, a brother had a light bulb this morning. He come down and he said, I pray every morning for more of the Holy Spirit. I've been praying wrong, hadn't I? I said, yep. He said, I have all the Holy Spirit I'm ever going to get. I said, yep. You don't need to ask for more of something you got. I said, what you need to ask for is more evidence of the work of the Spirit. Now I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. This has everything to do with going forward, brothers and sisters. This has everything to do with whether or not we're going to just be sinners saved by grace or we're going to be Christians who live out our faith. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power, that is the Holy Spirit, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. <laughs> so after the service, you go come up to me and say, Preacher, you don't live in the real world. If you lived in the real world, you wouldn't preach this stuff. Well, the Holy Spirit lives in the real world. You know why I know he lives in the real world? Because he lives in me and you who are followers of Jesus. 
And here's what the Holy Spirit does in the real world. He gives you everything you need for the real world. That's another way to translate life. He's given you everything you need to live in the real world and to live in godliness in the real world. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, which he granted to us his precious and very great promises. The Holy Spirit never works apart from the Bible. Sorry, this is an excursus. I need a word from God. You already have one. It's called the Bible. So that through them, you become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So the way sinful desire is overcome and you going down the path of corruption in the world is the spirit of God who lives within you, that you have him in you so that you are partakers of the divine nature. He renews you and he sets you on a trajectory to live as unto him. Third and final point, the Lord God graciously restores those who cry for mercy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Whose salvation is it? Look at verse 12. Whose? It's God's, your salvation. Now the Bible uses my other places, but it's never my salvation until I understand it's your salvation. It's not something I do, it's something God has done. Uphold me with a willing spirit. So he's got two concerns. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So whoever has felt the joy of God's salvation knows it's both real and unspeakable. So what God alone can give at first, God alone can restore when it's lost. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Make me the kind of person who obeys your word with a willing spirit. I want you to turn to Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you want to say it. And if you don't want to try to say it at all, that's fine. It's one of the minor prophets. It's toward the end of the Old Testament, right before you can get to the New Testament. I invite you to turn over to Habakkuk chapter 3. Now, I've been reading the minor prophets this summer. It's been amazing how it's correlated with the Psalms. These are some tough prophecies. Habakkuk's no exception, but it comes to this beautiful end. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. It doesn't say God, the Lord, gives me strength. Now that's true other places in the scripture. It says God, the Lord, is my strength. His divine power has given me everything I need for life and godliness. Uphold me with a willing spirit. What does that look like? He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. If I was marking in my Bible, I would underline the words, my strength and he makes, he makes. This is the work of God. So let me illustrate. Here's what I think some of you, this is how you live your Christian life. You get saved and you get right with God and you're scared to death. You're scared of two things, two things. You're scared of the world and you're scared to death of what other people at church are going to think. So here's how you live. Right here. 
Now, sometimes you get radical, and this is what you do. You move over here. You have all Christian friends. You go to Christian doctors. You go to Christian restaurants. Careful. God is my strength. He's my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread high places. It means God didn't save me and make me right to stand right here. This is where we're going next week. God's put his people on a mission. A mission. So the image that needs to be in your mind is you're looking at a stark mountain. Think at Rocky Mountains. If you've ever been to the Middle East, it would really make sense. There are no, no trees or lush vegetation up on the mountains. It's, it's stark. There's big, massive rocks. And standing up there is a deer. And you think, the deer's going to fall. And the deer's on a big old massive rock. And instead of coming down, the deer goes up. And from the big massive rock, the higher he goes, the smaller the rock he jumps on. Sometimes there's no rock at all. He's just digging up the side of the mountain. God made that deer sure-footed. He didn't make the deer like me and you. We'd stumble and fall off the side of the mountain. The image is that God is saying in a world which is dangerous and difficult, that God makes us like the deer. He makes us sure-footed people. This is what God does. He gives us what we need to restore to us the joy of our salvation. So here's my final question. Am I living and rejoicing as a person who has, been gracious, who has graciously been cleansed, renewed, and restored by the Lord Jesus? Really what I'm getting at here with this question is, I just see so many defeated Christians. Why are you living like that? It's because you don't believe God can cleanse you, restore you, and renew you. If you did, you wouldn't live in defeat. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. In him that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who walk, works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy, promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So let's just, let's just extract a couple things as it relates to Psalm 51. In Christ, we are redeemed through the blood of Christ and we are sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. That is, we've been purchased from sin, we've been bought back from sin, we've been cleansed, we've been renewed, and we've been restored. We've been set apart and empowered by the Spirit. That's what it means to be sealed by the promised 
Spirit so that we can live for Christ in our actual lives. Now what this results in in the life of the Christian is joy. When we understand what has transpired through Christ and in Christ and that we're in Christ that we're right with God. Now you, you're saying this today. It's a trick question. Don't answer out loud. Is forgiveness all you get through Christ? Or let me ask it this way. Is that all you need? The answer is no. Because it is possible to be forgiven by God and still not be in relationship with God. It is possible to be forgiven and go back to sin. But Christ did two other things. He reconciled us to God. He didn't just forgive us, and that's crucial. He reconciled us to God, and he redeemed us. He purchased us from sin and the slavery to sin and has now made us slaves of Christ. He's completely and radically changed our relationship with God. And he has empowered us through the Holy Spirit to set our feet so that we might live as unto Christ and, and as we're living in through the power of the Spirit, we're reminded this is a guarantee. It's a guarantee of what's coming. That one day we will be brought into the presence of God and acquire the possession of everything he has for us. I want you to hold that in your mind, what I just said. We're about to receive communion again. I'm going to answer a couple questions. Who can receive it? All who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. All who believe that it is Christ who forgives, who redeems, and reconciles. Who else can come? All who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation and all who recognize that the receiving of communion has absolutely no power to save you. Let me just be clear. If you think that it has some saving power, don't take it. That's idolatry. Number three, it is for all who are professing the finished work of Christ and giving thanks and giving thanks. To God. So here's how we're going to receive it. In a moment, people will be standing throughout this auditorium. And those who answer these first questions who may receive will go to a station. You will get a piece of bread and a cup and you will return to your seat. Now listen carefully. I'm now telling you to receive communion. So don't wait for me to tell you once you get to your seat. When you get to your seat, you will pray, give thanks. And when you are ready... You will receive the bread and the cup. After, you will rise to your feet and join those here on the platform who will lead us to joyfully sing praise. Listen to what Jesus said. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Then he said one more thing. I tell you, 
I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So when I take the bread and cup, for those of you who think, we did this last week, listen to me. I've done it twice already today. And I'm about to receive it again with you. And we were, I'm going to give thanks for two things. Christ, what you've done, and Christ, what you're going to do. We're going to rejoice together. So I'm going to ask the servers if you'll make your way, and let's all bow our heads as we pray and prepare us those to receive. So servers, if you'll make your way to your spot. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that has come to our hearts and our minds today. Thank you for all here who are trusting in Christ. I pray now they would rejoice as they give thanks and receive what you told us to do. And God, as we are doing that, we plead on behalf of those who have yet to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray that what they have heard and what they will now see will be used by the Spirit of God to convict their hearts of their need for Christ. May they run to you now, confessing their sin and crying to you to save them. Lord, I pray this would be no light or flippant moment among us. I pray that it would be a serious yet joyful moment as your people humbly, with joy, give thanks for what alone, you alone can do. Thank you, Jesus, that you invite us to the table. It is your work. We come deeply humbled. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.